0: Hallelujah, Christ is risen. risen (laughs) Hallelujah. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the door is being locked. In the holy name of Jesus, Amen. This is Sunday, and for the disciples, the Sabbath is over. It's no longer the holy Passover day, it's the beginning of a new week. The doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Why lock the doors? Well, there was sin out in the world. Enemies are after them. Death might seize them as it did Jesus, and all at the hand of the Jews. Not only did they lock their door to keep out sin, but strangely enough, then, trying to keep sin out, we lock ourselves in with it. You'll remember what happened when we tried to lock the doors, went through a society-wide experiment a few years ago to try to keep the boogeyman out. Turns out now, in hindsight, we know that we were locked up with it, too. But here we're talking about what it means to try to preserve yourself from evil from the outside world, be it the Jews, or death, or sin, or disease, or whatever. But of course, then, by locking the doors, you end up in prison Yourself. And that's really the best that God's holy law can do for you. This this is as far as it can get you as far as protecting you, your holiness, your purity. The law is there to preserve your life, but it turns out it can't even do that in the end. You're always stuck with it, accusing you that damning word in your conscience. You can close the doors, but it doesn't keep it out of your conscience. So these disciples were imprisoned, and they had imprisoned themselves. They are trying to protect themselves from sin, but what happens is they've just entombed themselves with their sin. And thus the law takes their life and leaves them for dead. And then suddenly Jesus came and stood among them. Now we know when Jesus comes in amongst us, it should be with good news. The presence of Jesus is what we want. Why we invoke his name each and every service. However, the disciples are not quite that happy about the arrival of Jesus Christ. When it says they feared the Jews, not only were they fearful of the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priest, or of those Jews that had cried out, crucified him, and had worked with the Romans to crucify Jesus Christ. Yes, they're afraid of those Jews, but they fear the big Jew. And that big shoe is Jesus Christ himself. The one that they are more fearful of than any other is Jesus himself. We had this earlier in the Gospel of John when they went to the tomb. John saw the empty tomb and then runs for his life. He's so scared, he's as scared as he can be, afraid of Jesus. They're not terrified of some attribute of Jesus, maybe that he's a mild man or maybe that he'll be a forceful, strong man. The thing about Christ that the apostles are terrified of is that he died on the cross with their sins. And worse than that, they are implicated then in his death. So they don't stay at the cross, they run away. They were directly implicated. Not only did they run away, but Peter in particular betrayed not once but three times rather than go to that cross. So here they are, afraid, in their little cubicle, hiding behind closed doors, They probably talked about how terrible Judas was to betray Jesus, but meanwhile, there they all were, the big betrayers, Peter being the biggest of them all, sitting right there. And Peter is more afraid than anybody else, because not only did he betray, but Jesus told him that he would betray ahead of time, and he didn't stop it anyway. And then Peter continued to deny this over and over again. So Jesus, coming out of the tomb alone is a scary Jesus to them. It is the Jesus who is going to come. And of course, when he comes, he not only knows their sin, he knows their faults, and he especially knows their betrayal. And what is going to become of them then? Not only does he know their sin, but then he uses his law to make his judgment. They know Jesus is the one who will come to judge, finally, in the end. And what will be his verdict The only conclusion, as they're huddled in that upper room behind closed doors that they can come to, is that he will use his law on them. And when he uses that law, he's going to judge them, betrayers. And so, they're afraid that he will come and unleash that final judgment on on them. And when they are revealed as betrayers, he will condemn them for it. So they're kind of in a funny position then, because in a way, they're hoping that Jesus stays dead. If he stayed dead, then at least they'd have some time before the final judgment. That would be a long way off. And maybe in the meantime, then, they can sort of plot their way out of this predicament, their little prison that they've made for themselves. And that is, as long as they are alive, as long as they have not crucified themselves, they will have time to amend their life, to make good what they had brought as wrong. They have time to make up something for all of this. So they're scheming, figuring out what, they might, uh, what that might be and how they will escape, again, the predicament. Again, suddenly Jesus comes in and he stands among them. And he says to them, peace be with you. He gives them the shalom. Now, this is not some kind of general shalom or peace. He's giving this with a proper preposition. Peace for you or with you. He's saying in the way of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 40, your warfare is over and your peace has now come. He's not just saying, I hope you could be at peace now finally. No, instead he's providing peace and giving it. This is what we call absolution. It is the forgiveness of their betrayal. And Jesus now has come and he's announced it to them. They were hiding, they were afraid of the Jews, and then suddenly the big Jew comes in and pieces them, shalom's them. Quite unexpectedly, not condemning them. Jesus has given them the word, the promise of forgiveness. Peace be with you. And then he shows them his hand and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They didn't know anything about gladness until after those words were spoken to them. Right after he says peace be with you till he's done the show and tell with his hands and his side so if the promise is correct that i've pieced you he says i just shalomed you who were at war with me and i brought this peace that means i've now absolved you of your sin and if you if your sins are forgiven then the issue is what has happened to that sin because if jesus can just come in and forgive sin The sin against him, the betrayal of him, the crucifixion of him, the son of God, if he can forgive that sin, then of course any and all sin is forgiven. And now the question is, that they probably had too, is where did the sin go? Where is it now? And how do I know for sure that you can forgive it since that sin was supposedly mine? And if anything really belongs to me that I know quite well, it's my sin. So again, he shows them his hands and his side. Thomas doesn't believe Jesus Christ when he comes to forgive him until he says, Go ahead and put your finger, your hand, into my side. What Thomas is doing when he's wiggling wiggling his finger in the side of Jesus Christ is touching the place where his sin was put. Thomas knows his sin very well. You know the stuff, too. You know it immediately when you touch it, when you feel it, that sin. So Thomas puts his finger in, wiggles it around, and behold, He's touching his sin there in Jesus. Then Peter, the same thing. And when they can feel it, this is, as it is in the church, incarnational, sacramental. The word of God, peace be with you, attached to a sign, his hands and his side. This is what it means to be the body of Christ. It's to be attached to Jesus in his body. Not just the idea of Christ, not some metaphorical vision of Christ, but actually his body. And his blood. The sin that belonged to them doesn't belong to them any longer. It's actually on Jesus Christ, and they touch it, and they feel it, and they know he took it. So now we learn what the resurrection is doing and why it's there. Well, you can't simply stop at Good Friday and tell people that Jesus died for your sins on the cross and just contemplate the cross. Because the resurrection is the power of the cross, the fruit of the cross, the fruit of his word. The power of the word in giving forgiveness. And forgiveness means that the sin you had has been placed on Christ. He took it and he died with it. He was also raised, which now means that sin that crucified Christ, your sin that went upon him and crucified him, is also conquered sin. It has been overcome. Not only is that sin that was yours now in Christ, but Christ conquered that sin, which you could never do. And then watch what happens next. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Over and over, peace be with you. He's giving absolution again. Eight days later, again, peace be with you. The absolution itself isn't the sticking of the finger into Jesus' side. That's the sign. But the absolution is the word. And the word is that that has the power. And it's the word that he speaks. So he says it not once. Not just twice, but three times. And then he breathes his Holy Spirit on them so that they believe that word and live according to it, giving them to forgive one another and proclaim that forgiveness as his apostles in this world. So finally then we come to what our catechism calls the office of the keys, which is the central matter of the gospel today. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. That is the task of the office of preaching that's established here in John 20, and it is the power to forgive sins. That's what it's all about. It's the only power of the gospel. It's the entire work that is given to Christ's preachers to forgive sins, to say, peace be with you, over and over. Pay attention in the divine service, or maybe go through the hymnal later on. See how many times you hear that word peace spoken to you, given to you, or in its synonyms, forgiveness or absolution. Because it's what you came here for today, just like those disciples, to have your sins forgiven. It's the incredible power of the resurrection. It is the power that creates new life and the power to create faith where there once was no faith. Therefore, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. Again, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you.